Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Hey everyone, and welcome to Real Life Real Crime Daily for Monday, February 27th, and I'm Jim Chapman. And I'm Woody Overton. And I'm Mike Agavino, and this is another one of our Crimes of the Century episodes. We are calling this one The Trial of the Century. Okay, and, and look, The Trial of the Century all started with Rodney. So on March 3rd, 1991, it was around 12th. 30 a.m., some officers with the California Highway Patrol attempted to stop a speeding white Hyundai. The driver of the car failed to pull over and instead led them on a high-speed chase when the driver eventually stopped on the corner of Osborne Street and Foothill Boulevard in the Lakeview Terrence neighborhood of Los Angeles. Several units of the LAPD had joined the chase. The motorist and his two passengers were ordered out of the car and onto the ground. Uh, across the street, a witness caught the following events on camera, and this is key because this was in the infancy of filming this stuff on the side of the road, right? Now it's commonplace. Through the footage, though the footage was grainy and shaky, it showed a group of mostly white LAPD officers violently beating the black motorist. His name, you already know, is Rodney King. For the next several minutes, the officers repeatedly struck King with batons, kicked him, and shocked him with a taser. King suffered multiple skull fractures, a broken leg, brain damage, and other less serious injuries. The footage aired on local television stations, leaving viewers shocked and furious. Television stations around the country and the world eventually picked it up. Four of the officers involved were charged with excessive use of force. Now, what, you, what other charges could they have been hit with in that situation? I don't know. It, you know it's got to fall back to they actually were, were trying to do their jobs, and obviously they went above and beyond with the ass whooping thing of the beatdown they put on Rodney King's. Uh, I don't know where that would fall into uh, the excessive force. Uh, I mean, of course, it, if they this was proven, which later on it wasn't, but if it was proven, then – yeah, you know, they violated civil rights and everything else. And obviously, when this stuff happens, you know, it puts a lot of pressure on, especially the mayor's office. And in response, the mayor of L.A., Tom Bradley, formed an independent commission on the LAPD nicknamed the Christopher Commission. The Christopher Commission concluded that Rodney King incident was not an aberration of the LAPD, that there was a significant number of officers who repeatedly used excessive force in recent years, 
and that this was a symptom of a larger cultural and structural problems in the department. Due to the charged nature of this case, a state appellate court panel ruled that the four officers would not receive a fair trial in Los Angeles. So they moved the trial, and they moved it to Simi Valley, which is nearby Los Angeles. And during the trial, the defense argued that what the video didn't show was that King was under the influence of alcohol and was in violation of his parole. He was resisting arrest and had charged at one of the officers in an aggressive manner. The footage showed King attempted to get up several times in which the officers said they thought was a threat. So, on April 29, 1992, the Simi Valley jury acquitted all four men. After the verdict, as you would imagine, people started pouring out into the streets of L.A. Angry and in disbelief, there was protesting and rioting, which led to one of the largest civil disturbances in U.S. history. Over the next five days... The city burned, and more than 60 people died, and you may not realize that. It's a huge number. It's a huge number. I remember it vividly. 100%. This was Los Angeles in the early 1990s, y'all, and it would be all too fresh in the minds of Angelinos when 1994 came around. August the 3rd, 1985 in Canton, Ohio, at the NFL Football Hall of Fame. The MC steps up to the mic and begins announcing. He's a two-time All-American from the University of Southern California and the 1968 Heisman Trophy winner. He was one of history's most heralded rookies when the Buffalo Bills selected him as the number one player in the entire 1969 draft. He rushed for 11,236 yards. He may be best remembered for a sensational 1973 season when he became the first running back in history to rush for over 2,000 yards with 219 yards in the next-to-last game against New England and a 200-yard output in the finale with the New York Jets. He totaled 2,003 yards, tops for a 14-game season in history. He led the league in rushing in 1972, 1973, 1975, and 1976. He was named the NFL Player of the Year in 1972, 1973, and 1975. He played in six Pro Bowls. And now, let me introduce you his former coach, Lou Saban. Saban speaks. Let it be said that he is far more than just a great athlete. He is a giant amongst his peers. In a business that too often forgets, its own. He has never forgotten his friends. He was always ready to help and give us his time. He never needed a reason. He just felt it was his duty. He felt that no man was an island that we should all care. He is a man of feeling and compassion. I never saw him refuse a handshake or an autograph. He is a man of class and dignity. He belongs in the Hall of Fame because he earned it. These are the words of Lou Saban, former coach of the Buffalo Bills. He approached the podium, looked around, and took in the spectacle of former players, friends, and family surrounding this monument to the National Football League and began to speak. Well, let me get started by thanking the Hall of Fame committee for the kindness and consideration they have shown my family, my friends, and myself in making us all feel welcome here. 
I want to say to my fellow enshrinees, Hall of Fame or not, man, I feel special just being around you guys. I want to say to all of the Hall of Fame members here, I wonder, do I belong with this group of guys? I see Ray Nitschke, Lenny Moore, Doug Atkins, Sam Huff, and my hero, Gail Sayers, all over there. Dick, Night Train Lane. You know, as a kid, I watched these guys and I read about them, so I figure I must have done something right to be here. I just want you to know that I will never let you guys down, man. I will live up to this honor of being in this hall and being on your team. There are people in life who teach you things that stay with you. I'll never forget Jack McBride because he told me, in this world, there are rules that we must all live by. You've got to learn that if you're ever going to be successful, you're going to have to learn to accept responsibility for your actions. I guess that's when I began to realize that it's really, really a secondary if you win or lose. It's how you play the game of life on and off the field that really matters. They called him Juice. His name is Orenthal James O.J. Simpson. While Simpson was winning his Heisman Trophy at the University of Southern California, he was already assessing the possibilities of a Hollywood career. He began acting while at USC and appeared on the TV show Dragnet in a role as a potential police recruit. He became a professional actor before ever playing in the NFL. He appeared in the first episode of Medical Center, remember that one with Chad Everett, while still negotiating his contract with the Buffalo Bills. While in the NFL, Simpson appeared in productions such as the television miniseries Roots in 1977, the dramatic motion picture, The Towering Inferno from 1974. That one does not hold up, by the way. Um, among others, in 1979, he started his own film production company, Orenthal Productions, which dealt mostly in made-for-TV, fair, lower-budget movies. Simpson started doing memorable Hertz Airport commercials in 1975. I'm sure most of our audience remembers those. For years, it was commonplace to walk through an airport and hear travelers yell, go, OJ, go, anytime someone was seen running towards uh, towards a gate. Besides helping his acting career, Simpson estimated that the very successful Superstar in Rent-A-Car series for uh, Hertz raised recognition among people he met from 30 to 90%. So everyone knew OJ. Hertz's annual profit increased 50% to $42 million in the first year of that campaign, and brand awareness for Hertz increased by more than 40%. He was huge for Hertz. Simpson became Hertz. Um, He became so important to the company that the CEO, Frank Olson, personally negotiated his contract. And Hertz used him for an unusually long uh, period of time as a celebrity endorser. I think it was almost a decade. And then they continued to use him as an advisor uh, to the company for years beyond that. In 1977, Advertising Age magazine, or Ad Age as we used to call it, named Simpson the magazine's star presenter of the year. By 1984, consumer research found that he was the most popular athletic endorser in the United States. You think about that today, that's, I don't know, LeBron, Steph Curry. uh, As Simpson's amazing NFL career came to an end, 
he well understood that his style, his good looks, his charisma would provide even more lucrative opportunities in front of the screen. So pardon the pun, but Juice squeezed everything he could out of them. In all, Simpson was in 36 movies. He produced nine movies on his own, and he appeared in a bunch of series, series like In the Heat of the Night, Roots, Here's Lucy, Cade's Country, Ironside, Medical Center, It Takes a Thief, Dragnet. Perhaps his most memorable work, uh, and my favorite uh, of the of the things he did, was his uh, ongoing comedic role as Officer Norberg in the Naked Gun series, which had Three movies, one that came out in 88, one in 91, and one ironically in, in 94. Surely um, you've got to be kidding. I'm, I'm dead serious and don't call me Shirley. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, Leslie Nielsen was, uh, was classic in best. those. Uh, George, uh, what was his name that, that played the serious guy? Uh, God, that actor was in every movie too. I can't think of his name, but anyway, very funny movies. And you watched him in movies. You saw the way that he played the game of football. You saw the way he carried himself uh, in sports coverage as a commentator. He did Monday Night Football. He did the NFL on NBC. I mean, he was a huge national presence. You might even say at that point in time, he was kind of a national treasure. I mean, by 1994, he had amassed a fortune. Uh, more than $10 million, probably way more than $10 million. And he was earning well more than a million dollars every year. Remember, we're, 1994 was a lot more than it, was, than it is today. Um, and that was just on his, his endorsement money. So the acting roles would would come on top of that. So very few people on the planet had it better than O.J. Simpson had it in 1994. And so with all that money and all that fame, it's no wonder he chose Brentwood as his uh as his home, Brentwood is a rich enclave on Los Angeles's west side. If you've ever lived in LA, there's uh, you know there's that west side attitude. If uh, uh, if you are living in the west side, which would be areas like Beverly Hills, Pacific Palisades, obviously uh, uh, Brentwood, Bel Air, uh, those kind of areas, uh, you're carrying your nose about uh, six inches higher up in the air than than most of the the rest of us that uh, lived in LA. With all the money and uh, and all that fame, you know, he ends up in, in in Brentwood and you know Brentwood streets house prominent movie stars, celebrities, world-class residents, all of whom prefer the area for uh, it's you know beautiful landscape, uh, great atmosphere and uh, luxury amenities. There are great restaurants there, uh, the Getty Museum is there. Uh, the views of the Santa Monica Mountains are fabulous from there. Home values in Brentwood average $3.5 million, making this a popular choice among the Los Angeles elite, and it is. The area of Brentwood where Simpson lived was 94.3% white and 5.6% Hispanic. Add those numbers together, it's 99.9% non-black. Simpson also became a member of one of L.A.'s most prestigious country clubs or golf clubs, uh, Riviera Country Club. For you fans of golf, it is now the venue for the Genesis Open every year. It is one of the four tracks in L.A. that are uh, the the most elite, the most desired to become a member of many, many, many famous uh, members at Riviera. Many major championships have been played 
at Riviera. It's a uh, it's a spectacle that uh, that golf course. Simpson was arguably as well known and well liked at this point in time again as any athlete of the era. Muhammad Ali, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Chris Evert, Reggie Jackson, I mean, a bunch of others you can name. Like I said, he's arguably, arguably at that point in time, he's the LeBron, the Steph Curry. Michael of, Jordan. Of that period. Uh, maybe just a step behind what uh, uh, what Jordan was in the, in the 80s and 90s. But he, he was a very, very big deal. I found it ironic that of all the coverage of Simpson and uh, the trial and and everything that, that went on, that Golf Digest, which is the most popular uh, golf magazine on on planet Earth, did a uh, a unique story during the trial. They actually uh, sent a writer out to Brentwood, and that writer called around and. Uh, arranged rounds of golf with members of Riviera that often played with OJ. So he's trying to get the feel from OJ's buddies about uh, about OJ. And uh, uh, a couple of things from from that article I thought were particularly interesting. So uh, the writers playing rounds with these members that are friends, and you know one of the members uh, immediately, like in the the first couple of holes they're playing, starts sharing OJ jokes. So you get the members of OJ's club that are telling OJ jokes uh, in the early days of the of the trial. So one of them was, "What's OJ's latest game?" The answer: "Pin the glove on the honky." Nice. The bad news is they found OJ's blood all over the crime scene. The good news is his cholesterol count is only one twenty five. Right. I'm sorry. That's not- None of the guys he, that that the writer played with volunteered that OJ uh, that they thought OJ was innocent. The feeling at the club was that he looked pretty damn guilty. One friend shared, quote, we're adults and we're less worked up about it than the general public. This is an old boys club. The guys here understand these emotions. We've all had problems with ex-wives and have contemplated killing them at one time or another. Not that we'd ever do it. The chick pissed him off. The writer asked the members if the members felt, you know, scandalized by uh, what was going on. And one of the responses was, uh, we're too powerful. See that guy pointing to a, a guy in another tee box. The gentleman he pointed to happened to be a man by the name of Stephen Bochco, who at, in that era was the producer uh, on the television side, the number one moneymaker in the business, a guy that was making north of $50 million a year. And the guy said, what OJ did or didn't do to his ex-wife is of no consequences to that guy pointing at Bochco. If OJ is found not guilty, he'll come back and we'll play with him like nothing ever happened. OJ's friend shared that members playing at other clubs had been submitting scores for OJ that were being entered on the computer. If you play golf, the idea is to keep your handicap high so that when you're betting against other players, you have an advantage. And this is the level of snobbery we're talking about. People playing in some of these uh, prestigious clubs around L.A. were submitting low golf scores under O.J.'s name to lower his handicap so that if he did uh, uh, get off and uh, and began playing again, he'd find himself in uh, difficult straits to make money betting because his handicap would be so low. Crazy. 
Yeah, so here's O.J. Simpson. He's living a life of abundance and privilege, as Mike just said, and in one of the West Side's wealthiest enclaves, playing golf at one of the snittiest clubs. He's hanging around with the elite narcissist, and he's about to play the race card. Let's get back to the beginning and go through the sequence of events that led to the trial of the century. So June 12th, 1994, exactly what happened sometime after 10 o'clock on a Sunday night is still disputed, but most likely a single male, but perhaps the perpetrator and a bystanding friend came through the back entrance of Nicole Brown Simpson's condo on Bundy Drive in the prestigious Brentwood area of L.A., In a small, nearly enclosed area near the front gate, the man brutally slashed Nicole, almost severing her head from her body. Then he struggled with and repeatedly, actually about 30 times, stabbed Ronald Goldman. Now, Ronald Goldman was a 25-year-old acquaintance of Nicole's who had come to her condominium to return a pair of sunglasses her mother had left earlier in the evening at the Mezzalina restaurant. A person would later post a sign outside the mezzalina reading, don't forget your sunglasses. So just after midnight, Nicole's howling Akita with blood on its belly and legs attracted the attention of a neighbor who then discovered the two bodies. The ill-fated investigation of the Brown, Simpson, and Goldman murders began. Nicole Brown Simpson's ex-husband, former football great and media personality, O.J. Simpson, meanwhile, was aboard an American Airlines flight to Chicago. Simpson had taken off from Los Angeles at 1145 after receiving a ride to the airport in a limo driven by Alan Park, who was an employee of the town and country limousine company. Limousine had left the Simpson estate on Rockingham Avenue about a half hour late after Park called to report at 1025 that no one answered his ring at the door. Very important. Park observed a man he assumed to be Simpson enter his house at 1056. Mike, wouldn't that be kind of cutting it close? I know you fly all over the world. Uh, well, I, I flew out of LAX a gazillion times and uh, making an 1145 flight when you don't get in a car until almost 11, even though we're talking late on a Sunday night, He's already on the west side in Brentwood. I mean, yeah, that's cutting it unbelievably close. I wonder, since Simpson was, you know, a hurt guy running (laughs) through the airport all the time, whether there was some sort of, uh, this never came out, I don't think, but some sort of arrangement at the airport where you just raced through and got to the gate. But under normal circumstances, I would not think a person could make that flight in that timing. Yeah, well, police called Simpson early Monday morning at the O'Hare Plaza Hotel in Chicago, where Simpson had planned to attend a convention of the Hertz Rental Company. When informed that his wife had been killed, Simpson did not ask how, when, or by whom. He did, according to his later testimony, smash a glass in grief, badly cutting his left hand. Now, prosecutors would have a different explanation for the injury. Simpson boarded the next flight to Los Angeles, arriving home about noon to find a full-scale police investigation underway. Police tape stretched across his front gate and cardboard tags marked bloodstains on the driveway. So, 
the investigation kind of starts to focus on Simpson. The LAPD questioned Simpson for about a half hour that day. They asked Simpson a number of questions about the deep cut on his right hand. Now, Woody, you and I have talked about this many times on on our other podcast, but you have mentioned before you've never seen a stabbing where someone didn't cut their hands. Never. Never seen someone, especially in a brutal stabbing to death, where they didn't cut themselves. So that was obviously something the LAPD was also up to speed on, and they really wanted some answers to that. Now, Simpson initially claimed he didn't know the source of the cut. Later in an interview, he suggested the hand was cut when he reached into his Bronco on the night of the murders, then reopened the cut when he broke a glass in his Chicago hotel room after being informed of the murder. From the standpoint of the police, the interview was remarkably inept. Officers did not ask obvious follow-up questions, and whole areas of potentially fruitful inquiry were ignored. So unhelpful was this interview that neither side chose to introduce it into evidence at the trial. Eventually, police accumulated enough evidence indicating Simpson's guilt in the murders and that they sought and obtained a warrant for Simpson's arrest. Now, under the agreement worked out with Simpson's attorney, Robert Shapiro, Simpson was to turn himself in at police headquarters by 10 o'clock in the morning of June 17th. This was the day following Nicole's funeral. When Simpson didn't show by the agreed-upon time, police told Shapiro that they would be driving to his Brentwood home to pick him up. Sometime after 1 o'clock, four officers knocked on Simpson's front door. Soon, they they and Shapiro discovered that Simpson had disappeared. Off, it turned out. Or perhaps the most famous ride in American history since Paul Revere warned Bastonians of the arrival of the British. I watched the entire thing live. Yeah. Yeah, which interrupted my Knicks. Right. Oh, yeah, (laughs) the game was on. I remember that now. I also watched it live, and uh, I'm sure many of our listeners did as well, and what they may not realize is Simpson left behind a letter. It was addressed to whom it may concern. It had all the markings of a suicide letter. It ended. Don't feel sorry for me. I've had a great life. Great friends. Please think of the real OJ and not this lost person. Thanks for making my life special. I hope I helped yours. Peace and love. OJ. Now, around 6.20, a motorist in Orange County saw Simpson riding in the white Bronco of his friend, A.C. Callings, and notified police. Soon, a dozen police cars, news helicopters, and some curious members of the public were following in pursuit of the Bronco. With Simpson's arrest in his own driveway, after making the arrest, police discovered $8,750 in cash, a false beard and mustache, a loaded gun, and a passport in Cowling's vehicle. For the prosecution, hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Things that make you go, hmm. Yeah. So for the prosecution, the biggest mistake of the trial may well have been to file the Simpson case in the downtown district rather than, as would be normal procedure, in the district in which the crime occurred. In this case, that would be Santa Monica. Now, implausibly, the prosecution explained his decision as an effort to reduce the commuting time of prosecutors and better accommodate the expected media crush. Uh, Whatever. Bullshit. 
More likely, the decision was a political one based on concerns that a conviction by what would be a largely white jury in Santa Monica might spark racial protest or even riots similar to those that occurred following the trial of the four LAPD officers accused of beating Rodney King. The prosecutors probably believed that their case against Simpson was so strong that even the more racially diverse jury, likely in downtown L.A., would have no choice but to convict. Now, once the trial began, there would be other blunders, and that's saying it uh, in sugarcoat yeah, right. <laughs> To name just a few, the decision to have Simpson try on the gloves using the murder, the decision to call Mark Furman to the stand, and the strategy of presenting so much evidence from so many witnesses over so many weeks that the case lost really a lot of its force. Now, on July 22nd, 1994, Simpson answered the question, how do you plead? At his arraignment with absolutely 100% not guilty, Your Honor. Yeah. Months of discovery, jury selection, and hearings on issues such as whether to permit cameras in the courtroom and the admissibility of DNA test results followed. Yeah. And y'all are now going to the jury selection. Jury selection got underway on September 24th, 1994 in Judge Ito's courtroom. President Day were 250 potential members of the jury and the judge, Simpson and lawyers for both sides. Participating for the defense in the jury selection process were attorneys Robert Shapiro and Johnny Cochran, as well as highly respected jury consultant Joe Ellen Demetrius. The prosecution was represented by Marsha Clark and Bill Hodgman and jury consultant Don Vinson. Judge Ito explained procedures to the potential jury members and warned them that the trial might last several months. The remark about the expected length of the trial prompted Simpson to moan loudly, Oh, God, no. My kids, my kids. Ito told jurors they must complete a 79-page 294-question questionnaire, including questions proposed by both the prosecution and defense. In addition, they were to complete a one-page hardship questionnaire designed to determine jurors who could be initially excluded from the selection process. Potential jurors complained about the lengthy questionnaire, which took about four hours for many people to complete. They also overheard muttering complaints about the personal nature of many of the Questions, questions about their beliefs concerning the causes of domestic violence, about their feelings concerning interracial marriages, about whether they ever provided a urine sample to be analyzed for any purpose. Jury selection continued for two months. Judge Ito excluded from consideration potential jurors who violated his strict rules relating to exposure to the media. One juror was excluded for watching cartoons with her kids, another for waking up to a clock radio. On October 18th, Faye Resnick's book on Nicole Simpson's relationship with OJ hit the bookstores, causing Ito to order a temporary halt to jury selection and to tell potential jurors, I forgot to tell you to stay away out of the bookstores. And y'all, I got that book the day it came out. A week later, yeah, a week later Ito dealt 
with another controversy. This one brought on by Prosecutor Marsha Clark, who had publicly complained that potential jurors were lying to get on the Simpson jury and that all ought to be given lie detector tests. Possibly seeing her remark later as potentially prejudicing juries against the prosecution, she then asked Ito to dismiss the entire jury panel, citing recent publicity. He refused. During the voir dire process, each potential juror took a seat at the conference table. Also seated at the table were lawyers for both sides and Simpson, sitting not more than six feet from the people that might soon judge him. The object of Wadir, from each side's perspective, is not to get a fair jury, but rather a prejudiced one, one that's prejudiced in their favor. In theory, what results is a fair jury, one from which both sides have excluded potential jurors that are at least likely to be sympathetic to their cause. Jurors who give answers that indicate that they have prejudged the case can be challenged for cause. Others can be excluded using a limited number of preemptory challenges. Attorneys can exercise their preemptory challenges for almost any reason, body language, appearance, dissatisfaction with answers, but not for reasons of race or sex. Every challenge by the prosecution of a potential black juror calls Cochran to approach the bench and suggests that the challenge may have been racially motivated. This tactic may have worked to dissuade the prosecution from from challenging some black jurors. It was no secret that the prosecution wanted white jurors and the defense wanted black jurors. Despite defense survey data suggesting that women generally made better defense jurors than men, Prosecutor Clark willingly accepted a disproportionate number of women jurors. She reportedly believed wrongly, as it turned out, that female jurors responded well to her courtroom style. The defense simulated jury tests had indicated that black females disliked Nicole Simpson, believing that she was irresponsibly milking money from a famous black man and that they would also likely be hostile to a hard-edged female prosecutor such as Marsha Clark. The defense poured great effort into the jury selection process and consulted Demetrius coordinated massive data on each of the jury finalists, including their answers to the questionnaire, responses, and body language during the voir dire, and other data the defense had managed to collect. This data was put into a computer, and each juror ranked according to their likely sympathy to the defense. By November 3rd, an initial jury of 12 had been selected. The jury consisted of eight blacks, two Hispanics, one half Caucasian, half Native American, and one Caucasian female. Fifteen alternates were selected over the next few weeks. On December 4th, the jury was assembled and given cautionary instructions by Judge Ito. They were told that the trial would begin on January 4th and that they could expect to be sequestered for the duration of the several-month trial. Wow. Crazy, right? I just I remember everything from her they making her change her hair to all kinds of shit. I'm talking about Marsha Clark. Uh, so outplayed. Yeah. I mean, you know, before the teams got on the field, yeah. they so outplayed in advance of the, the game even, even beginning. But uh, on Tuesday, January 24th, 1995, the game did begin. The trial began. Reporters and camera persons converged on what writer Dominic Dunn called the Super Bowl of murder trials. 
Judge Ito, Judge Lance Ito, in his opening remarks, told those assembled in the courtroom that he expected to see, quote, some fabulous lawyering skills. Um, yes, he did. Christopher Darden, if you remember, he wasn't mentioned in the uh, uh, in the jury uh, piece, but he, along with Marsha Clark, were the primary prosecutors. He led the prosecution's opening statement by portraying Simpson as an abusive husband and a jealous lover. He told the jurors if he couldn't have Nicole Brown Simpson, he didn't want anybody else to have her. Marsha Clark followed with a statement laying out the facts, proving Simpson's guilt that the prosecution would establish during the trial. The next day, Johnny Cochran gave an opening statement for the defense in which he presented a confused timeline of events and suggested that Simpson was so crippled by arthritis that he couldn't have possibly pulled off a double murder. Cochran told the jury that the defense would prove that the evidence against Simpson was, quote, contaminated, compromised, and ultimately corrupted. Over the next 99 days of trial, the prosecution put forward 72 witnesses. The first set of witnesses suggested that Simpson had the motive and opportunity to kill. And then the second set suggested that Simpson had, in fact, used that opportunity to kill his ex-wife and Ronald Goldman. So the first group of witnesses included relatives, friends of Nicole Brown Simpson, friends of OJ, the 911 dispatcher, uh, and that uh, they were all produced to demonstrate that Simpson had a motive and uh, and that there was a, a history of domestic abuse between he and Nicole. Nicole's sister, Denise Brown, described seeing OJ at the dance recital of his daughter earlier that day. His daughter's name is Sydney. Uh, she said that Simpson looked scary, looked like a madman. She told of a dinner attended by her and Nicole and other friends in which OJ grabbed Nicole's crotch and said, quote, this is where babies come from and this belongs to me. Tearfully, she told of an incident in which an enraged Simpson picked up his sister and threw her against a wall. Ron Ship, a friend of OJ's, testified that Simpson once told him, I've had some dreams of killing Nicole. A 911 dispatcher took the stand so that the prosecution might play for the jury a terrifying 911 call from Nicole describing the ongoing assault by Simpson. I want to let you guys give a listen to that 911 call. Can you get someone over here now to 325 Gretna Green? He's back. Please. Well, okay, what does he look like? He's O.J. Simpson. I think you know his record. Could you just send somebody okay. over here? Okay, what is he doing there? He just drove up again. He just drove up over? Okay, wait a minute. What kind of car is he in? He's in a white Bronco, but first of all, he broke the back door down to get in. Okay, wait a minute. What's your name? Nicole Simpson. Okay, is he the sportscaster or whatever? Yeah. Okay. Thank what is, you. Wait a minute. We're sending the police. What is he doing? Is he threatening you? I'm going nuts. Hey, has he threatened you in any way, or or is he just harassing you? You're going to hear him in a minute. He's about to come in again. Hey, just stay on the line. I don't want to stay on the line. He's going to beat the shit. Wait a minute. Wait. Just stay on the line so we can know what's going on until the police get there, okay? Okay, Nicole? Uh-huh. Just a moment. Does he have any weapons? I don't know. Okay. He went home and now he's back. Okay. The kids are up there sleeping and I don't want anything to happen. Okay. Has he hit you today or no? No. Okay. You don't need any paramedics or anything? Uh-uh. Okay. You just want him to Close leave? my door. 
He broke the whole back door in. And then he left and he came back? And he came and he practically knocked my upstairs door down, but he pounded it. And then he screamed and hollered and I tried to get him out of the bedroom because the kids were sleeping in there. Mm -hmm. okay. And then he wanted somebody's phone number and I gave him my phone book and was going or I gave, put my phone book down to write, mm -hmm. write down the phone number that he wanted and mm -hmm. then he took my phone book with all my stuff in it. What? What does he say? What <sighs> Just stay on the line, okay? Is he upset with something that you did? Oh, a long time ago, it always comes back. The call kind of speaks for itself. Uh, this woman was obviously Nicole Brown Simpson, a very frightened woman, and uh, and for whatever reason, this relationship was toxic and powerful. And and uh, you know, OJ uh, OJ sounds like a pretty violent guy on that tape. So the prosecution next produced a set of witnesses, including limousine driver Alan Park. Cato Kalin, who became famous through this trial, who was sort of the caretaker at uh, O.J.'s home, and officers of the LAPD. This was all done to establish a timeline of events and, uh, and show that Simpson had ample opportunity to commit the murder. So limo driver Alan Park proved to be one of the prosecution's best witnesses. He testified that he arrived at the Simpson home in Rockingham at 1025 to pick up O.J. for his scheduled flight to Chicago. That would have been a very logical time, 1025, actually aggressive, uh, but logical for where he lived to get to an 1145 flight to, uh, to LAX. He said he rang the doorbell repeatedly, but no one answered. Shortly before 11, according to Park, a shadowy figure, black, tall, about 200 pounds, and wearing dark clothes, walked up the driveway and entered the house. A few minutes later, Simpson emerged from the house Got in the car, told Park he had overslept. Park testified that as he entered the limo, Simpson carried a small black bag, which the prosecution hoped the jury would conclude contained the murder weapon. Park testified that Simpson would not let him touch the bag. The bag has never been seen since. A sky cab at LAX testified that he saw Simpson near a rubbish bin with the bag. Simpson's house guest, Cato Kalin, one of the trial's more colorful characters, as I said, testified that he and Simpson returned from a run for Big Macs and French fries at 9.36 p.m. After that, Kalen couldn't account for Simpson's whereabouts. He said that he heard some thumps on his wall just before 11, which is about the same time that Park said he witnessed the shadowy figure entering the house. The prosecution also produced telephone records that show Simpson used his automobile's cell phone. Remember those days where we had the built-in yep, cell phone indeed. in the car? And then this is 1994. So uh, Simpson used his automobile cell phone to call his girlfriend, Paula Barbieri, at 10.03 p.m. The defense did not attempt to explain why Simpson would make a call on his car cell phone at a time when he claimed to be in his backyard 
practicing his golf stroke, which is where he said he was. Finally, the prosecution began to put forward witnesses directly tying Simpson to the two murders. The evidence was technical and circumstantial, relating mostly to results of blood, hair, uh, carpet fibers, footprint analysis, all of this coming from both the Bundy crime scene and Simpson's home on Rockingham. Probably the most compelling testimony concerned two RFLP tests. That sound familiar, Woody? Mm-hmm. Restriction fragment length polymorphism, basically genome testing. And at the time, trials didn't use DNA tests. Right. This was state-of-the-art DNA testing for the mid-1990s, and this was the first trial ever to use DNA testing as evidence. The tests indicated that blood found at the crime scene could have come from only one out of 170 million sources of blood and that O.J. Simpson fit the profile. Uh, Folks, at that time, there were less than 300 million people living in the United States. And so if it's one out of 170 million, there were possibly two people in the United States that that blood could have belonged to, one of them being O.J. Simpson. The second came from blood found on two black socks at the foot of O.J.'s bedroom. According to the prosecution testimony, only one out of 6.8 billion sources of blood matched that sample. Nicole Brown Simpson might well have been the only person on earth whose blood matched the blood found on the socks. So we have two blood sources coming from two different people, one of which Nicole uh, was likely the only person on earth that blood matched and OJ was one of possibly two people in the United States that that blood matched. That's pretty what, strong evidence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Strong, yeah. Strong. And the other one should have been Cato Kalins. <laughs> <laughs> On cross-examination of the prosecution's DNA expert, the defense had little choice but to begin to develop the theory that either the blood samples were contaminated or they were planted by corrupt police officers. The LAPD officer who found the bloody glove outside Cato Kalin's bedroom, boom, Jim, outside Cato Kalin's bedroom, turned out to be a godsend for the defense's corrupt police. Outside Cato Kalin's bedroom turned out to be a godsend for the defense's corrupt police theory. His name, the officer, Mark Furman. He testified for the prosecution on March 9th and March 10th. In his book about the trial, Robert Shapiro wrote, quote, a suddenly charming Marsha Clark treated him like he was a poster boy for apple pie and American values, unquote. Three days later, F. Lee Bailey, for the defense, began a bullying cross-examination of Furman in which he asked the detective whether, in the past 10 years, he had ever used the N-word. Furman replied that he absolutely never had done so. It was a lie. Yeah, and let me tell you, F. Lee Bailey ate his lunch yeah. chewed him up and spit him out and i i don't care if you're telling the truth or not you look across and you see f lee bailey about to cross-examine you yeah. you're gonna get nervous yeah. wow that was something to see now the second prosecution disaster followed prosecutor christopher darden having just proven that nicole purchased one of the only 300 pairs of these exact gloves months earlier and overwhelmingly confident that the bloody glove belonged to simpson decided 
he was going to make a dramatic courtroom demonstration. He would ask Simpson, in full view of the jury, to try on the gloves worn by Nicole's killer. Judge Ito asked a bailiff to escort Simpson to a position near the jury box. (laughs) Crazy. Darden instructed Simpson, pull them on, pull them on. Simpson seemed to struggle with the gloves and said, they don't fit. See, they don't fit. Later, it would turn out that there were good reasons why they wouldn't fit. The gloves may have shrunk because of the blood. Photos would turn up showing Simpson wearing ill-fitted gloves, but the damage had been done. Later, Cochran would offer the Boom Jim memorable refrain, if it don't fit, you must must acquit. And everybody's heard that. And let me tell you, uh, Christopher Darden should have known those gloves would shrink when they had blood on them. Uh, huge mistake of many for the prosecution, and you can't make not one mistake with the this defense team, I can tell you. They also allowed him to put on those clear plastic liners yes. first. Which yes, would tighten the gloves, <laughs> naturally. And look, as you look at that video, you can he was acting – a little bit there sure. uh, when he was trying to pull him down. It looked a lot tougher than it could have been. But look, big mistake, big mistake by the prosecution. As any good attorney will tell you, you never ask a question you don't already know the answer to. So a field trip included that included the judge, the jury, lawyers for both sides, the defendant, and a bevy of trailing media types illustrate how the defense early on in the trial saw the race issue as playing to its advantage on a jury that included nine African-Americans. The trip to the Bundy Avenue crime scene and Simpson's Rockingham home was intended to provide the jury with a better basis for understanding testimony concerning locations of the bodies, gloves, and socks. The defense saw it as an opportunity to put a favorable spin on Simpson's life. Before the jury arrived at Simpson's home, down came a picture of Paula Barbieri, O.J.'s girlfriend, who was white. In its place, up went a Norman Rockwell print from Johnny Cochran's <laughs> office that depicted a black girl being escorted to school by federal marshals. Just great defense attorney right. work there. Pictures of Simpson standing with white golfing buddies were replaced with a picture of his mother and other black people. A Bible was installed conspicuously on an end table in the living room. The tour seemed to go wonderfully well for the defense. As the group toured his home, Simpson pointed to a backyard play area and said, that's where I practice my golf swing. Yeah, yeah for real. Y'all, when they call him the dream team, I always say the trial lawyers are really putting on a show, and these people did it. The dream team, um, the strategy of Simpson's defense team called the dream team in the media was to undermine the prosecution's evidence concerning motive and suggest Simpson was physically incapable of committing the crime, raise doubts about the prosecution's timeline, and finally to suggest that the key physical evidence against Simpson was either contaminated or planted or both. On July 10, 1995, Simpson's daughter, Arnell, took the stand as the first defense witness. She would be followed by Simpson's sister and his mother, Eunice Simpson. By the time Simpson's mother finished her testimony, it was apparent to the 
some courtroom observers that the jury members were showing more empathy for the Simpson family than for the families of the victims. As successful as it turned out to be, the defense effort was not without its own miscalculations. Simpson's doctor, Robert Huizinga, testified that O.J., despite looking like Tarzan, was in about as good of condition as Tarzan's grandfather and suffered from arthritis and other problems. The prosecution, however, produced a video taken shortly before the murder showing Simpson leading, demanding physical exercises, especially embarrassing for the defense, was equipped on the tape from Simpson as he performed an exercise that consisted in part of punching his arms back and forth. Simpson suggested people might try this workout with the wife. <laughs> the, the most talked about aspect of the defense case undoubtedly concerned Mark Furman, the LAPD officer who had found the bloody glove and who, as a prosecution witness, denied using the N-word. It turned out that Furman had used the N-word many times, and it was on tape. Laura Hart McKinney, an aspiring screenwriter from North Carolina, had hired Furman to consult with her on police issues for a script she was writing. McKinney taped her interviews with Furman, who not only used the offensive racial slur, but disclosed that he had sometimes planted evidence to help secure convictions. The defense, right? The defense wanted McKinney on the stand, and they wanted the jury to hear selected portions of her tapes. The prosecution strenuously objected, arguing that McKinney's testimony was irrelevant, absent some plausible evidence suggesting the evidence was planted in the Simpson case. The prejudicial value of the testimony, the prosecution insisted, would exceed its probative value. Yet Ito, somewhat reluctantly, allowed the defense evidence. Ito's decision opened the door for the defense to offer its rather fantastic theory that Furman took a glove from the Bundy crime scene, rubbed it into Cole's blood, then took it to Rockingham to drop it outside Kalen's bedroom to frame Simpson. It may not, however, have been Furman, but rather a soft-spoken Chinese-American forensic expert named Henry Lee that won Simpson his acquittal. Lee had solid credentials, smiled at the jury, and provided what seemed to be a plausible justification for questioning the prosecution's key physical evidence. Lee's raised doubt with blood spatter demonstrations. His suggestion that shoe print evidence suggested more than one assailant and his simple conclusion about the prosecution's DNA test, something's wrong. He might have, as Christopher Darden speculated after the trial, been the person who gave the jury permission to do what they wanted to do anyway, acquit Simpson. Jury forewoman Amanda Cooley called Lee a very impressive gentleman. Another juror agreed, describing Lee as the most credible witness, a person who had a lot of impact on a lot of people. And y'all, I actually went to a forensic class that Henry Lee uh did at, at a homicide convention I went to. He is a genius. So by the time closing arguments began in the case, the trial had already broken uh, a record that was set, ironically, by the Charles Manson case as the longest jury trial in California history. The jury had been sequestered for the better part of a year, uh, and they were definitely showing signs of strain and exhaustion. Judge Ito was uh, was under attack for allowing the trial to drag on and for his uh, seeming inability to keep lawyers under control. I mean, you remember what a mess it was. 
Uh, Marsha Clark's summation for the prosecution sought, among other things, to do damage control on the Furman issue. She denounced Furman as a racist, the worst type of cop, and as someone we didn't want, quote, on this planet. But she told the jury that doesn't mean there was a frame-up. She took the jury again through the prosecution's mountain of evidence. They used puzzle pieces on a video screen that, as she talked, would come together and in the end uh, be aggregated and reveal the face of O.J. Simpson. Darden followed Marsha Clark, telling the jury that Simpson could be, quote, a great football player and, quote, a murderer as well. Um, in case they didn't know that you could be both of those things. Cochran, on the other hand, added controversy to an already very controversial trial when he did his summation. His co-counsel, Robert Shapiro, was later to condemn Cochran's closing for, quote, not only playing the race card, but playing it from the bottom of the deck, unquote. Cochran compared the prosecution's case against Simpson to Hitler's campaign against the Jews. He said, there was another man not too long ago in this world who had those same views, who wanted to burn people, who had racist views, and ultimately had power over people in this country. People didn't care. People said he's crazy. He's just a half-baked painter. This man, this scourge, became one of the worst people in the world. Adolf Hitler, because people didn't care, didn't stop him. He had the power over his racism and his anti-religionism. Nobody wanted to stop him. And so Furman. Furman wants to take all black people now and burn them or bomb them. That's genocidal racism. Is that ethnic purity? We're paying this man's salary to expose these views. The jury spent only three hours deliberating. I remember, remember being braced for it to be days or maybe weeks, and they took three hours deliberating, deliberating a case that had produced 150 witnesses, had taken over 133 days, had cost taxpayers more than $15 million, and it took them three hours. As America watched at 10 a.m. Pacific time on October 3rd, 1995, Ito's clerk, Deirdre Robertson, announced the jury's verdict. Quote, we, the jury, in the above entitled action, find the defendant, Orenthal James Simpson, not guilty of the crime of murder. Simpson sighed in relief. Cochran pumped his fist and slapped Simpson on the back. The dream team gathered in a victory huddle. From the audience came the searing moans of Kim Goldman, Ron's sister, and the, the cry of his mother, Patty Goldman, oh my God, oh my God. Simpson announced after the verdict that he would devote the rest of his life to tracking down the real killers of his ex-wife. Yeah. But he would soon be preoccupied with a civil trial. Right. And uh, I will never forget uh, two things with what you just talked about. Number one, Johnny Cochran's summation was absolutely the probably the best summation I've ever seen. Like him or hate him. He had a job to do, and he did it. And it was a work of art from a defense perspective. Probably one of the best attorneys of all time is Johnny Cochran. Uh, that being said, doesn't mean OJ didn't do it. It just means from an attorney perspective, he had the best. Now, 
the worst part of that trial for me. And I watched every freaking minute of it. I had a dog at, the, at that time, a chow that I had gotten right after that trial started. You know what I named it? Edo. My child's name was Edo. Seriously. Um, was totally enthralled in that case. Now, uh, the worst part of that for me was after the verdict was read and they showed Daddy Goldman's face. Mm-hmm. And it was horror. And as a dad now, I wasn't a dad then, but I am now. I could not imagine having been in his position. Uh, it was awful. His sister was uh, frantically crying. And you have you you can hear that clearly when the verdict is read. And it was just uh, so horrible, so awful. And uh, and so they have one avenue kind of left on this to get any sort of justice. And in my opinion, they've lost all of their justice from a criminal standpoint with this verdict. They have a civil side of this that they can go after, and they do. They they uh, sue Simpson civilly and in the trial which was held in santa monica it only take three months and would produce a very different result simpson was forced to testify clumsily trying to explain which is obviously unexplainable photos showing simpson wearing the size 12 bruno magley shoes that he claimed not to own turned up first in one newspaper and then others the judge in the civil trial Fujisaki, Horatio Fujisaki proved he was no Lance Ito and prevented the Simpson defense from introducing fanciful theories of a top-to-bottom conspiracy. That was one thing Ito was, uh, Judge Lance Ito was uh, criticized for was in the trial kind of being starstruck by the Ethel Lee Baileys and the Johnny Cochran's and all these uh, dream team lawyers. So, Hiroshio Fujisaki, no uh, no Lance Edo in that case. Now, after 17 hours of deliberation, the jury concluded using the preponderance of the evidence test applicable in civil cases that O.J. Simpson had wrongfully caused the death of both Ronald Goldman and Nicole Brown Simpson. The jury ordered Simpson to pay compensatory damages of $8.5 million and punitive damages of $25 million. Under California law, however, Simpson can continue to survive on the $25,000 a month income from a judgment-proof pension fund. Isn't that crazy? You know what that is? Yes. that's that. It's his pension for football. It's his NFL pension. So the, the NFL Players Association negotiated into their deal somehow that nothing could take priority over that pension being delivered to former players. Even murder. Even, even being. Yeah. That's shocking, y'all. Yep. Now, in 2000, Simpson moved to Miami, Florida. Florida is one of the few states where assets such as home and pensions cannot be seized to pay civil liabilities from other states. Simpson's legal troubles still were not over, however. In 2007, Simpson coordinated a gunpoint assault and robbery of two sports memorabilia dealers in a Las Vegas hotel room. Simpson claimed that he was simply trying to recover memorabilia that was rightfully his, but the jury thought otherwise, and Simpson received a 9-33 to year sentence for robbery, assault with a deadly weapon, and kidnapping. 
He served his term at Lovelock Correctional Center near Reno, Nevada. He was granted parole in 2017, and all restrictions on movement and behavior were lifted by the Nevada Parole Board on December 1st of 2021. Now, prison was not easy on Simpson, who in 2015 was slammed against the wall and threatened with death by a white supremacist inmate after Simpson cut ahead of him in line for medicine. Three months later, a former cellmate of Simpson also threatened to kill him when O.J. refused to pay him the amount of protection money he thought he was due. In 2006, a publisher announced a book written by O.J. Simpson called If I Did It. I read read that one, too, unfortunately. The publisher told the AP, this is a historic case, and I consider this his confession. In the book, Simpson describes angrily confronting Nicole and Ronald Goldman at Nicole's condo on the night of the murder, knife in his hand. (laughs) Then he writes, something went wrong. And I know what happened, but I can't tell you exactly how, he continues. The whole front of me was covered with blood, but it didn't compute. Interestingly, in Simpson's account of the murder, he describes himself as having been accompanied to the condo by a friend named Charlie. He meant Keith who was shocked by the bloody turn of events. On the way back to Simpson's home, Charlie said, Jesus Christ, OJ, Jesus Christ, and buried his face in his hands. The announcement of the book met with a barrage of criticism. Ronald Goldman's sister, Kim Goldman, on CNN's Larry King Live, expressed the outrage of victims. He's telling us one more time, I'm going to continue to get away with killing your family members, and I'm not going to honor the judgment. Look at me. (laughs) The criticism caused HarperCollins to recall the book. A court seized the book as an asset to pay off Simpson's civil damages, and the book was retitled, If I Did It, Confessions of the Killer. I'm glad my book fee went to... uh Give back some a of good the conversation. Cause. Of course, y'all, they're talking about double jeopardy. OJ could have said whatever he wanted to, and they couldn't try him again for it. So looking back, um, the Simpson trial was, in one sense, just a trash novel coming to life. But in another sense, it was a great trial. It revealed in a way that got everyone's attention the polarization of racial attitudes on issues such as law enforcement. It showed that African Americans are, on the whole, much more likely to suspect police of racism and misconduct based on their experiences than are whites. It may be, for that insight, more than anything, that the Simpson trial will be remembered. But the trial had other profound effects. It created a greater awareness of domestic violence issues, it provided lessons in how not to run a criminal trial. Lessons applied by judges in subsequent celebrity trials. Finally, the Simpson trial reversed what had been a powerful trend towards allowing the use of cameras in criminal courtrooms. Those cameras in the Simpsons courtroom made possible a new type of immersion journalism. Journalism that follows a sensational story almost obsessively day after day. A type of journalism that still flourishes today. And I'll tell you that going on in Alex Murdoch's trial right now. And going on everywhere. And not in the state of Louisiana. One of these days we're going to talk about the, uh, we'll probably do this on Bloody Angola, talk about the Penn State uh, uh, scandal, which is another uh, great example of what we're talking about here. You know, they, they 
call this the, the, the trial of the great trash novel come, come to life. You guys know who Larry Wilmer is? Larry Wilmer was on Comedy Central for years, comedian, uh, uh, really funny guy. But anyway, Wilmer has this saying. He calls it Primo Simpson Uratus. And translated in Latin, it means first Simpson jury. Primo Simpson Uratus. And the what it really means is our agenda is more important than your truth or than the truth. So when an agenda of a group outweighs the importance of truth, and that is clearly the case with the first Simpson jury and uh, hence Primo Simpson Uridus. In the early reports of the murder of the wife of the ex-football star turned sports announcer hadn't caught people's full attention Boom, Jim. If the early reports of the murder of the wife of the ex-football star turned sports announcer hadn't caught people's full attention, Simpson's surreal Bronco ride on the day of his arrest certainly did. 95 million television viewers watched that stupid chase. Uh, I said before, it was the 1990 Knicks hadn't been in the, the finals of the NBA for decades, and there we are on the brink of winning a championship. John Starks and Patrick, Patrick Ewing, Ewing are suddenly— replaced with the white Bronco and AC Cowlings and OJ. 133 days of televised courtroom testimony turned countless viewers into Simpson trial junkies. Uh, Even foreign leaders such as Margaret Thatcher and Boris Yeltsin eagerly gossiped about the trial. Uh, There's a a thing I read that said when Yeltsin uh, uh, was having a summit meeting with uh, with President Bill Clinton, the first question he asked Clinton was, do you think OJ did? I mean, think about that. But Putin asking uh, Biden if OJ did. Uh, when at 10 a.m. on that October 3rd, Judge Ito's clerk read the, the not guilty verdict, 91% of all persons viewing television were watching. That a 91 share of viewership. The, the Super Bowl, for instance, has maybe a 60 share today. So you're talking about... Uh, a, a larger oh, draw, higher yeah. market share than the the Super Bowl had at uh, at that point in time, and it was probably the first. Re- it wasn't the first trial to ever be televised, but it was the kind of the one that made that popular. I guess you could say uh, for sure. It changed yeah. so many things, and you know, a couple things about Court the, TV was. Yep, bored it, it, it it launched Court TV for sure. Um, a couple of of things that that just. Uh, pop up about the jury. One, none of the regular jurors in their survey said that they regularly read a newspaper. Um, Eight of them said they regularly watched tabloid TV. Five thought it was sometimes appropriate to use force on a family member. Excuse me for this. We don't do politics on the show, but all, every juror was a Democrat. Five reported that they or another family member had had a negative experience with the police. So the prosecution did a great job during jury selection. Nine thought that Simpson was less likely to be a murderer because he was a professional athlete. The racial composition of the jury was obviously strongly influenced by the decision of the prosecution to file downtown 
because of the Rodney King thing, rather than Santa Monica, the jury would have been uh, constituted very, very differently if uh, if that had been uh, the case. The other thing you don't hear about is, and uh, curious your response on this, Woody, the decision of the prosecutors not to seek the death penalty cost them the advantage of not having a, quote, death-qualified jury. Studies suggested that a death-qualified jury is one, well, first of all, is, it's not surveys that suggest, suggest this. A death-qualified jury is a jury from which all the jurors uh, who oppose capital punishment are, uh, are, are pulled, they're excluded, right? So only jurors who believe in the death penalty participate, and jurors who uh, don't support the death penalty are disproportionately female and black. And so that would have, had they gone for the death penalty, that would have constituted the jury differently than the, than the jury was uh, constituted. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I think that whole case was uh, all down to Mark Furman. And I think that uh, that was enough reasonable doubt with his racial issues. Um, I'm not going to say regardless of jury, it, I think when you got that kind of defense team and you've got a guy that they just hung out to dry with Mark Furman, um, it, it, it that was the key component. Because that's crazy. enough of a doubt to say he could have planted evidence. For, for sure, but here's the, here's, the, here's the point, though. The DNA evidence said that the blood on the socks no doubt. could only have come from one yeah. person on planet Earth, and the blood on the gloves could only have come from possibly two yeah. people in the United States. So, Mark, well, there's, planted, there's no doubt. Mark, Mark Furman woke up that morning and decided he was going to go kill OJ's wife and plant it on him. But, but no, but you're right. No, I, end, I totally think Mark get it because look, OJ what? did it. Mark Furman's made that. way more money than OJ. He's now the consultant on all these news channels and fucking law enforcement. Is he hires. really? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, he consults Absolutely. on a lot of things. On professionally consultant on national news. That, so, I, I think the point of all of the DNA stuff, I think there was two problems with that. Yeah. Number one, it was in his infancy. So yeah. not a lot of people understood it. Right. But number two, um, the defensive side of that is the blood was planted. Yeah. So just because, you know, yeah. Johnny Cochran said it eloquently. He said, you know, we're not debating it's her blood on his socks. We're debating that it's there because of yeah, him. And here's the deal. They only you've got a guy, a racist, it, racist. It doesn't. It, you, you're absolutely right. And, and, and they did their jobs. Dream Team did their job. Uh, not proving that he was innocent, but proving there as he, he couldn't be found guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. It, there certainly was probable cause for the rest, the cuts and the blood and everything else. At the end of the day, they did their job. Furman fucked it up. The prosecution fucked it up. And you had to come back. And then, then they played the race card times 10. Uh, uh, Furman helped them on that. The The f prosecution should have known Furman's a piece of shit. They, he should have let him know, yeah, I've used the N-word. They knew right. that was coming, and it is what it is. Hey, oh, i got to tell you all this. Yeah. I'm sorry. The When it happened, the chase happened, my roommate uh, was Sean Brady. His dad was a federal judge in Baton Rouge. He's now dead. He graduated with my parents from law school. But he was in Los Angeles, and 
he came back like four days after the car chase and he bought me a shirt and I have it to this day and I'm going to bring it the next time. It was in my house, Marpoff, it didn't get destroyed. A black t-shirt with the scenes of the white Bronco and the car chase and it says, free OJ on the back says, let the juice go. (laughs) (laughs) Look, and and he probably sold a lot. Oh, for sure. OJ was guilty of sin and we all know that. Hey, OJ, Um, go fuck yourself. You're guilty. So come see me. Oh, Lord. All right. We want everybody to check out the Facebook page. We're going to be posting all kinds of awesome real life, real crime daily information on that page. Please tell your friends about us. Like, comment, subscribe, do all those great things. And until next time, I'm Jim Chapman. I'm Woody Everton. I'm Mike Agavino. With Real Life, Real Crime Daily. Peace. business. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.